My plan uh, over the next few weeks is not to start a new series, but just to do some devotional uh, teaching or preaching, things that the Lord has been working in my heart, things that I've just been reading in my own devotional life and have jumped out and I've kind of just asked the Holy Spirit to give me guidance on what he wants me to preach on and what he wants me to say and uh, to encourage you and be a blessing to you in, in these times and uh, challenge your heart. So it's likely I, I, we might not be in the Psalms the entire uh, four weeks, but, but we might be. And we're just going to have to see how the Lord leads and directs and be in prayer that he gives me what I need um, to minister to your hearts and your minds during these difficult times. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 80. I'm Actually, this was a part of my devotion several weeks ago, and I was reading through it, and just the chorus of this psalm really hit me in a, in a unique way, and I just began to read it over and over and over again, began to pray it and pray over it, and it just really impacted the way that I, I thought about my prayer life and, and uh, some, maybe some important pieces of it. And so then this week, as I was praying, Lord, what, do you want, what would you have me to preach? Um, I think it was maybe Wednesday, the Lord began to say, why don't you preach that? You know, begin to, to um, encourage my heart to go to that text and just to share with you some of the truth, some of the lessons that are mentioned in here to hopefully encourage your heart as we and as a, a people, as the people of God, we face these similar things as we struggle and, and, and deal with these things. So I'm going I'm to just read it to you, and then we'll walk through it together. The Bible tells us in uh, chapter 80 and verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before, Ab- before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sends out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. When you have broken down its walls, so that, why have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck at its fruits? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. Before I move on, I just want you to make a mental note that that is a very, very similar phrase to the, uh, what we will call the chorus that's mentioned in verse 3 and verse 7 as well. So really you have four times that this phrase is used in the text 
This time it's, it's phrased a little bit differently, but it's actually stating the same thing. Verse 15, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself, that have, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, then we will turn back from, then we will turn back from you, give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. A few things about this passage, of, about this psalm that are important to remember is this is a psalm of Asaph. And the psalm of Asaph, Asaph was, as noted in uh, historical writings as well as the books of First and Second Chronicles, Asaph was, was both a musician and a prophet. He wrote several psalms, including Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 through 83. And most all, really all of Asaph's psalms deal with some type of judgment from God. The Bible says uniquely about this psalm that it is a psalm according to the lilies. According to the lilies simply reminds us of one of three things. It either reminds us what type of music the song was played to. We might call it a genre. Uh, we would, uh, I think, two other psalms are, are written according to the lilies. So it might be a genre of music. It might be a type of instrument, which um, is most likely to be accurate here because the Hebrew word shushan, which is where we get the word lily from, is actually a the name of a six-stringed instrument. And so many believe that possibly a harp of sorts. And this is, I would say, the most likely of interpretations of this psalm. The last possibility would be the fact that it just the poetic beauty of the psalm, having it being referred to a lily. The psalm is undoubtedly a prayer for God's deliverance in a time of bondage for the children of Israel. The children of Israel were often experiencing seasons of bondage in their life. Uh, whatever season you would want to reflect on, you often found them in bondage to some nation or to something because of their sinfulness and their neglect of God's goodness and their rejection of an appreciative, thankful heart. And the reality of it is God's people were often in bondage because they refused to be thankful for what God had previously done for them. If you look at their life, they would go from one season of blessing and then they would become very self-sufficient and self-righteous and then they would return to bondage. Then they would cry out to God for help, which is what we're seeing here in this psalm. They would receive help, then they would go through another season of blessing and then they would become self-sufficient and self-righteous and then they would go into another season of bondage. And then they would cry out to God for help, and then they would experience God's blessing, and they would experience a season of, of, of goodness, and then they would become self-righteous and self-sufficient and go through another season of bondage. And that's the cycle of the Jewish people. That's what they, they went through over and over and over again. And that's the cycle that's being prayed about here, that God would deliver them from this cycle. 
It's not just to deliver them from sin. We often think of being in, we often think of being bound to sin, right? We think of being bound to pornography or, or bound to lust or bound to pride or bound to worry or bound to anger. We think of being bound to these things, but we often don't think of the fact that we might be bound to a cycle of something. We're bound to it. Now, now that, that cycle is a result of sin, but that cycle is not the sin itself. The prayer in this psalm is not just to be delivered from the bondage to sin, but it's to be delivered from the bondage to the consequence for sin, which is the cycle that the children of Israel were um, repeatedly found themselves to be in. We too experience bondage in this life that we need to be delivered from. Again, not necessarily the bondage to sin, which is most common, but also the bondage, a bondage to the result of sin. Bondage to something that God, that comes from God as a punishment or a chastening for sin. You see, the Egyptians were not the sin. The, uh, um, the Assyrians were not the sin. They were the, the product of the sin. God put them into bondage, and they're praying that God would deliver them from the consequences of their sinfulness. It is a way that God chastens us, a way that God restores us, a way that God renews us is through his chastening. You may think of situations in your own life where you felt like a certain sin was the problem, and so you did away with that sin. You perhaps developed a certain self-discipline, and you were able to overcome that sin on the basis of that self-discipline, but you remained in the cycle that went along with that sin. You were never delivered from the consequences of that sin. You were perhaps developed a system that helped you overcome the sin itself. We not only need to be delivered from sin, but we need to be delivered from the consequences of our sin. Being delivered from sin is something that we do when we repent and we walk away from that sin. Being delivered from the consequences of sin is something that's different and unique. It takes a a special act of God's grace. Like the guy who, who, who robs the bank, he may never rob the bank again, but that doesn't mean he's been delivered from the consequences of his sin. He's been delivered from his sin, but he's not been delivered from the consequences of his sin. He still must go before the judge and say, I'd like to be set free because I have been restored and changed. There are certain cycles that we find ourselves in that we often can't escape, and we don't understand why we can't escape those cycles. We've may, we may have given up the sin that caused those cycles, we may have escaped the sin that, that brought about those cycles, but we've not, we're not able to escape the cycle. You might not be able to escape a bad relationship. You might not be able to escape a bad job, or you might not be able to escape bad people. You might not be able to escape negativity in your life, pessimism all the time, always pessimistic. You might not be able to escape that. You might not be able to escape doubt and fear, You might not be able to escape certain circumstances or situations in your life. You might not be able to escape worry or financial ruin. You might be stuck in a cycle that you need to be set free from. And this is a prayer that that the psalmist uh, prays 
that not necessarily that God would deliver them from their sin, but that God would deliver them from the consequences of their sin. God would deliver them from this cycle of bondage, which was chastening from the Lord, and they would like to be set free from it. There are some things that I want to address here in our text. There are four, um, this is a song, and there are four verses to the song, and I want to address the four verses to the song first, and then I would like to address the chorus. And the chorus of the song is mentioned four times, and it gives us really the, the essence of, a, of, our, of how we can pray that God would set us free from the cycle that results, the consequences, if you will, of our sins and difficulties. So lessons from the verses of the song. Number one, who do we pray to for deliverance? You'll notice in verse one and two, the psalmist writes, give ear, which just simply means to listen. It's a, it's a, it's a call for, the God's, for God's attention in the situation. And then he says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who have led Joseph like a flock. The first thing that he refers to and that he cries out to God is he cries out for his shepherding heart. He looks, he looks to God as the shepherd of his soul, the one to whom the sheep matter, the one to whom the care of the sheep, the provision of the sheep, the well-being of the sheep is important. When we look at the 23rd Psalm, we see the Lord is my shepherd, right? And then we see a lot of things that go along with the fact that the Lord is our shepherd, important things. We're not going to be wanting people. We're not going to be worrying people. We're not going to be fearful people. We're not going to be lacking people. All of these things are in Psalm 23, and they're all a result of the first phrase, and that is the Lord is my shepherd. When we go to the Lord, we have to realize and recognize that whatever our circumstance or situation is, God cares about what we're going through. God is the one who provides deliverance. He's the one who provides even in those situations. We think about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, who provided their food, who provided their clothing in the midst of their, of their cycle that they were stuck in. Well, God did. God cared for them even in the difficulties that they were in. So the psalmist reaches out to God initially as their shepherd. And if we don't understand God to be a shepherd, a caring, loving, compassionate, one who is concerned, invested in our well-being, we will not reach out to him in these difficult moments and seek the deliverance that we desire and hopefully that he desires as well. Who do we pray for? We pray for God, our shepherd. We pray not only to God, our shepherd, but we pray to God, our sovereign. He goes on to say, you who are enthroned, we know that God cares because he's a shepherd, but we know also in his sovereignty that he has the authority and the power to do what is necessary to bring deliverance. We're not praying to somebody who is incapable of, of accomplishing what we have requested. He is enthroned, meaning that he is seated on the throne. He sits on the throne as the judge. He sits at, on the throne as the one who has brought forth the condemnation, the judgment, and the cycle that we're in and is able to deliver us from that cycle. The Lord himself is able to set us free from the cycle that we find ourselves in as a result of our sinfulness. 
He has the power to do it. He has the power over all things. Everything is subject to the Lord. It's true, isn't it? You see, but it's only when you believe that, at the the core of it, if you don't believe that the Lord is a shepherd, that he cares about you, if you don't believe that he is a sovereign, that he has the ability and the power to deliver you, you don't go to him. Or maybe you go to him casually and lackadaisically as if it doesn't really matter. It's like I'm I'm doing my duty and, and not recognizing that you're dealing with a shepherd and a sovereign. You look at the life of Job, a man who suffered greatly because the Lord allowed it to happen, didn't he? Teaching Job some lessons. But how long did it take the Lord to turn Job's world around? How long did it take for the Lord to stop all of Job's persecution and turn it into blessing? It wasn't long, was it? Job's cycle ended. It was all took place within a one-year period, and then God doubles everything that Job has. Because God is sovereign, isn't he? God is capable. You can go to God with your cycle, with your difficulty, with your struggles, with whatever, whatever you seem to constantly be facing over and over again. You can go to him, and he has the ability to set you free from it. He does. Not only is he the shepherd, but he's also the sovereign. They go to him as the, as the sovereign. And it says, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. This is interesting because the cherubim, the throne, the mercy seat was, there were two cherubims or two angels on each side of the mercy seat. So, so we're, we're, we're meant to see here, the, we're meant to see the mercy seat here, that Jesus Christ is enthroned on his mercy seat. And I just put this down. He is our shepherd, our sovereign, and our savior. When we go to him, we go to him seeking mercy. We don't go to him seeking what we deserve. We don't go to him seeking what we've earned or what we've worked for. We go to him seeking what we do not deserve. We go to him seeking what we cannot earn. We go to him seeking deliverance from a just condemnation. We belong in the cycle that we're in, don't we? We deserve the cycle that we're in, don't we? We don't go asking him, Lord, we we can't handle this anymore because we don't deserve it. We go to him because he is a merciful savior. He is merciful and gracious to set us free from these things. Man never deserves liberation, but they can obtain it by God's mercy. I'm convinced that many of us don't believe these things to be true, that we don't go to in prayer to a a God who we believe cares about us. We don't go in prayer to a God that we believe is completely sovereign over all things. And very few go to him in prayer realizing that he is very, very merciful and gracious. And to those who come to him for mercy and grace, he bestows it willingly and freely. He tells us in Hebrews 4 and verse 16, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. What are we looking for? We're looking for God's mercy. We're going to a God who is merciful. We're going to a God who is gracious. We don't go with demands. We go with requests. Psalm 136, the entire psalm is about his mercy endures forever. Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us, he delivered us, 
not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Only those who understand these attributes about God will plead with him for deliverance. Others avoid him because they don't trust him because he is the one who has bound them. One of the things that you'll notice in the text is that the, the actor in regards to their bondage and their cycle is God. He's the actor. The judge has said to them, you are guilty. The judge has said to them, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The judge has said this to them. The judge is righteous in his judgment. The judge is merciful to give mercy to those who come and plead for it. But the judge is still the judge. Only those who trust Christ to be these things will come to him for deliverance. John chapter number three literally says it this way, that the light has come into the world and Christ is that light. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and they would not come into the light because they did not want their deeds to be exposed. Number two, this is the second the second verse of the hymn, why do we pray for deliverance? He says in verse number four, O Lord God of hosts, the word host here, it's used throughout this text, God of hosts, it means God of war, God of, of armies. We don't want to miss that. He says, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. And our enemies laugh among themselves. Why do we need to be delivered? Because we have angered God. We have angered God. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 59. And you can read verses 1 through 13 in your own time. But verses number 2 the Bible says. Our sins have separated between us and our God. We, we lose sight of that in this generation. God is not angry with anyone. God's love has overcome all of his anger and all of his wrath and all of his justice, and God is not angry with anyone. And that is untrue, and that is unbiblical. And people will stand before God one day expecting a God who is not angry with sin, but they will meet a God who is angry with sin. They will meet a holy God, a just God, who has put them in a cycle of life to show them how sinful they are. They continue to come back to the same place in their life, the same miserable place in their life to remind them of how sinful they are, but they don't accept it and then fall on their knees and ask God for, for mercy. So he graciously lets them stay in the cycle so that they will realize that they need mercy. We are angry. God is angry with us for our sins for the children of Israel, it was their idolatry. It was their fornicating. They were intermarrying. It was their murmuring and complaining. It was their fighting amongst themselves and their constant doubting. They doubted the character of God. They doubted the goodness of God. They had doubted the accomplishments of God. They doubted everything about God. God had already delivered them from Egypt. He's going to bring that up here in the next phrase. God had already delivered them from Egypt, but yet in this moment, they become doubtful again. 
The Bible tells us in Psalms that God is angry with the wicked every day. We have angered the Lord God by our sin. The consequences or the chastening for our sins is bondage. The consequences or the chastening for our sin is bondage. God is the actor in your bondage. God is the judge who has condemned you or condemned your sin. He has fed you with tears. He has made you drink greatly of tears. He made you an object of contention to your enemies. He made you a laughingstock to your neighbors. These are not joking comments. He wants us to know how sinful we are. The Bible tells us in in Romans, it says that the law has came to make our sin exceedingly sinful. And then he says this, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. And it does not mean that you go out and sin greatly so that you can get a great abundance of grace. It means when you make much of your sinfulness, when you acknowledge your sinfulness as being as being as being outrageously sinful that God is outrageously gracious but one who acknowledges their sins as being simply simple small things will receive simple small grace why do we pray for deliverance because we have angered God and we have entered into the cycle that we're in because of God's anger towards us Let's go on to verse number four of the, of the song. He says in verse eight, you, bought, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. What, 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 is, what is here? is simply God's blessing on the Hebrew people. He brings them out of Egypt. He then plants them in the promised land after they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and murmured and complained about God's failing them. This, this is our third point under this one. What has been done to need deliverance? And if you look at it and study the, the journeys of the children of Israel, what they did is they just continued to complain and murmur about God. They had experienced all the things that got everything necessary for life. They had experienced everything necessary for blessing. They had, they, God had promised them that you're going to go into the promised land. And you're not going to fight by your own strength or your own might, but I'm going to fight with you. I have given this land to you. It is yours now. All you have to do is go in and you have to possess what I have given to you as a gift. But the children of Israel refused to believe God. They refused to accept what God had promised them through his word. And it's no different for us today that we have thousands of promises in God's word, but they're not easy to believe, are they? We find, we find promises that are met with great obstacles, with big giant obstacles. And so we murmur and we complain about the promise not coming to fruition because we're afraid of the promise coming to fruition in a supernatural way, or we're afraid of losing or the promise not coming true. 
Lack of appreciation and recognition of God's blessing is what leads to this cycle. For the Jewish people, it was their deliverance from Egypt, the planting in the promised land, the the providing of strong roots and a wide influence. That's what it's mentioning here, all of these things. We We could go back to the Garden of Eden when God created us all made us in his image, blessed, blessed Adam and Eve in the garden with everything that they could ever need or imagine for enjoyment and pleasure, right? And what did they do? They forsook him. They turned their back on him. They walked away from him and took what Satan was offering as an exchange for what the Lord was offering. And may I submit to you that that's what we do on a regular basis. We do the same exact thing. God has given us everything necessary for for life and godliness and even the, pleasures of this, uh, even the pleasures of this world that we can enjoy within the right context. Marriage is a great context for us to enjoy a lot of pleasures. But what does the world do with that wonderful gift that God has given us? Well, we don't want it within the context of marriage. We want it out of the context of marriage. And, 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 and it goes on and on and on how much we don't appreciate the blessings that God has given us. So what do we do? We enter into this cycle, this, this um, continuous cycle of, of being in bondage or being in prison to something. So they go into the, they go into after God has blessed them and brought them into the promised land and given them all the instructions for the promised land, They start making agreements with their enemies. They start sleeping with their daughters and having immoral relationships. They start worshiping their gods, right? How'd they get into the promised land? Who owns the promised land? God does. How did they get it? Gave it to them as a gift, right? It was a blessing to them. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. God gave it to them as a blessing. What do they go in there and do? They do in there and forsake their God. And God puts them in a cycle of bondage. Poor deliverance. So what was, the, what was it that, uh, what has been done to, for them to need deliverance is simply the fact that they have not embraced God's blessings. They've been unthankful. You read, the, you read the scriptures, that's one of the most powerful of motivations for sin is a lack of thankfulness for what God has given us. We're, we're a blessed people, aren't we? I mean, honestly, we're a blessed people. We sit here on a Sunday morning inside of a building. We've got people to fellowship with people to hang out with. We've got, we can take communion together and not be persecuted for it. We can, we can read the word of God and not be persecuted for it greatly, at least yet. But I tell you something, listen, the more we take that stuff for granted, we lose. We lose it. You know what, church? Church used to be full on Sunday mornings. Statistics are per, small percentage of people who went to church 50 years ago or the amount of people, percentage of people that went to church 50 years ago going to church today. You know why? Because church is no big deal. Well, you can keep saying that until you don't get to go anymore. Long time ago, people read this book every single day of their lives. Statistics are, not very many people do it anymore. Yeah, no big deal. 
yeah, it's no big deal till you won't have this anymore. <coughs> Prayer, years ago, people prayed constantly. Set aside times in the day, praying. Some people for hours, reaching out to the one who has control of all things. Say, I don't need to pray that much. No big deal. Yeah. Wait until you can't do it anymore. That's the cycle. We need to be free from the cycle. They needed to be free from the cycle. Let's read on. He says, why have you broken down its walls? So what does God do? God, God uh, when, when, when we don't show appreciation, when we're not thankful, when we're not um, devoted to what God has blessed us with, when we don't honor him with what he has given us, what does he do? Well, he just takes, he just takes away the protection. He just takes away the protection. I'll just give the government some more power that they can just take away all of your, all of your liberties to worship and serve. You don't take it seriously. And not, I'm not saying this about us. I'm just saying this about our world today. This is how we view things. We don't realize that we're in a cycle and we're slowly losing the things that matter to God and ought to matter to us. So what does God do? He takes away the hedges, which was just a symbolic way of, you know, you ever build hedges around your house? It's a protective, it's a source of protection. Takes it away. He says, um, why have you broken down our walls so that those who pass along may pluck at our fruit? You've allowed the boar in the forest to ravage it and all the, all the move in the field feed on it. Basically, he's allowed destruction to take place. Just taking away our protection, taking away our guard, allowing evil to have more authority. This is what we see in the book of Revelation as well. Let's go to the fourth verse. He says this, uh, verse 15, the stock that your right hand had planted and the son whom you had strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, they, may, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. The fourth verse is about who is the means of deliverance. You'll notice the mention at the very end of this, in this fourth verse, it just talks about a person. It's, a, it's one person. He talks about strengthening one person. And he talks about the strength of this one person will be the cure or the deliverance for all people. And who is the strength, who is the one person to whom he refers here in this text? It's the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who sits at the right hand. We see this in the New Testament on several occasions that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The prayer is, is that God would strengthen Christ for the victory. That God would place an emphasis on Christ for the victory, that God would place a focus on Christ, that, that Christ would be exalted so that we might be victorious, that Christ would be elevated. John chapter number 12, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. In other words, when Christ is exalted, men are drawn to him. Where, Christ, where Jesus Christ is lifted up, where his death and resurrection are exalted, they're made much of. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God is now drawing men to himself. 
The best thing that we can do for the deliverance of ourselves and the deliverance of other people is pray the exaltation of Christ. Because it is the exaltation of Christ through which we experience deliverance, through which we see him. It's the strength, the strength of Christ that matters because we can't win on our own no matter what, amen? It is trust in Christ that matters because we can't trust in ourselves and he is the only one who is able to keep us from falling. Colossians 3 and verse 1, it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Jude verse 24 and 25, it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be majesty, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times, now and forever. Amen. It is the exaltation of Christ that brings us deliverance. And our prayer is not for, for us to figure it out or for us to have strength. It is for Christ to have strength. It is for Christ to be victorious in our life. We come to the chorus, which is mentioned four times in the text of Scripture. The chorus is, is a prayer, if you will, of the psalmist who is writing, who is outlining, explaining the difficulties that they are in. And the, the prayer is, is very simple, and it's very, very bold, and it's, it, it, it presents to us three important truths. The prayer is simply, restore us, O God, or restore us, O God, of, our ho of host, or turn again, O God, of host, Look down from heaven and see, let your face shine, is another way of saying it, that we may be saved, and then it says, have regard for this vine. This is truly the theme or the chorus of the song. While we learn much from the verses, we are meant to learn the most from the chorus because it captures the whole of the psalm. It is the prayer of the psalmist that he would experience deliverance. And there are three aspects to this deliverance, two that are um, on us and one that is a product of, and we'll look at that here in a moment. The first is simply this, Lord, please turn us. Lord, please turn us. The word restore here, or as mentioned in verse 14, turn again, is a, is a request for God to turn the hearts and the minds of those who are making this prayer. Restore us from our previous direction. What is important to note is this is also an acknowledgement of the fact that we're going in the wrong direction. It is a recognition of our turning from God and not his turning from us. The problem isn't that God has turned his back on us and the Jewish people. Is The problem was with them and with us is that we have turned our back on God. And it may often seem as even the psalmist will pray, God, why have you turned your back on me? And maybe you've even prayed that prayer, Lord, why have you turned your back on me? Why are you no longer uh, interested in me? Why are you no longer caring for me? Why am I no longer important to you? And the reality of it is, is none of those things are true at all. The problem is, is God is, why am I no longer important to you? Why have you turned your back on me? Because we are the ones that have walked away from God, not he walking away from us. 
And he will allow us to do that. And he will allow us to walk in our disdain for him. He will allow us to walk in our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency until we get far enough away that he puts us into bondage and says, you've gone far enough. And listen to me, it's for our own good. It's because he loves us enough to not let us go any further. So what does he do? He puts Egypt, he puts Syria, he puts Babylon in the way saying, I'm not letting you go any further. The prayer is simply this, Lord, turn me back around. Lord, cause me to do an about, about face. You are sovereign, right? He is sovereign. You care about me. You are my savior. Now, God, please turn me around. It's amazing when you think about like verses like 1 John 1, 9, if we're confessing that we're sinful, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The problem is, is we rarely confess that we are sinful. We rarely confess that our problem is that we've walked away from God and not that he's walked away from us. We rarely recognize that the problem is us and we often recognize the problem as being him. It's exactly the same as we see in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, where the thought is, Lord, grant us repentance. Grant us a turning away. It's not only, listen to me, it's not only the recognition that you are a sinner, it is the recognition that you have no ability to turn yourself around. It is a state of total dependence and total need and desperation. If you don't turn around, you will face the judge on judgment day. Ask the judge. How many of us want to do that? But you can't turn yourself around. So then what do you do? Well, you find somebody who is a shepherd, who is a sovereign, and who is a savior, and you plead with them to turn you around. But if you don't believe in Jesus... If you don't believe him to be those three things, you'll never go to him for those things. Because that's why faith matters. He that believes these things. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them Repentance. Turning them around is what it means to repent. Leading them to the knowledge of the truth. It is a recognition that we are sinful. It is a recognition that we can't do it ourselves. One of the, one of the greatest challenges to our generation, I've lately been praying about and thinking about this, is, is the fact that Proverbs 21, 2 says this, every man's way is right in his own eyes. How do you overcome that? How do you overcome that? Every man's way is right. That means your way is right in your eyes. The question is, is it right in God's eyes? Lord, 
please turn me around. Lord, please turn me around. Lord, please turn me around. And every day until you are turned around, that should be the plea of your heart. James tells us we have not because we, we ask not. It says we're to ask, we're to ask, and then we're to do what? Seek, and then we're to do what? Knock, here's what we're at to do, whatever it takes to get God's attention. There is no other alternative. God, turn me around. The second part of the, of the prayer is simply this. Lord, please shine on us. You see, it's simply this. It is the, it is the glory of Christ It is the radiance of Christ. It is the beauty of Christ shining down on his people that is the deliverance. When Christ shines his glory on your situation, when Christ shines his glory on your circumstances, when Christ shines his glory on your world, everything changes. So the request isn't even to change my circumstances. It's just God shine on me. God, show me your glory. Like Moses asked, and God said, you can see my goodness, but you can't see everything. And when Moses, when God showed Moses his goodness, Moses couldn't even come in front of people because his face was glowing. Isn't that a pretty transformative thing to happen? Imagine somebody getting in the presence of God in such a way that they can't be in front of people because they glow so much. That's what Moses did. Shine on us, Lord. Shine your face down upon us. Without your glorious face, without your glorious presence, everything is wrong. But with your face and with your shining and with your glory, everything is right. Is that true? All he needs to do, listen to me, you don't have to pray for every little detail. All you need is God to shine on you. That's all you need. Everything is fixed when God shines his face on his people. Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 3 says it this way, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And all nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. He's talking to the Jewish people. Lord, shine on us. Lord, turn us. Lord, change us. Lord, transform us. Lord, shine your face on us. Now that we've been turned and changed, we can see your presence. Now we need your favor. We need the the glory of your light, the glory of your face to shine upon our lives. And then the last one is just simply, Lord, please save us. I wrote this as a question. This is not a question, but it is a statement of fact. 
And you'll notice it in the way that it's written in your text. It says, so that we might be saved. In other words, the way that it's written in the Hebrew is simply this, a product of being turned and having the face of the Lord shine on you is that you're saved. You're saved. It's, it's nothing more than that. There's nothing more to it. When you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ because Christ has shown you who he is in a supernatural way. When Peter says, when the Lord asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are, you are the son of God. You are God's son. And Jesus, and Jesus says to him, flesh and blood hath not taught this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Amen? He was Peter was revealed something to him that was supernatural that he could not produce on his own, and it resulted in his salvation. You see, what happens is, as God turns us around through repentance, faces us to him, then he shines on us, and we are, you were, oh, maybe I want to get saved, right? No, that, that doesn't happen with somebody to whom the Lord has shined on. It is a supernatural shining. It is a beauty that you have never, it is a beauty that you have never experienced. It's not like a shining where he says God's like forcing your arm behind your back and being like, you're going to get saved. If you don't get saved, then, then something bad's going to happen. It is so beautiful and glorious that you would, you would do anything to get what that is. That's the type of convince, that's what makes it, that's what makes it unresistible is it's not forced on you. It is so beautiful that when God shines it on you, you cannot resist it. It's like when I see my wife. It's like irresistible grace right there. I'm serious. Irresistible beauty. And you guys, you better all say amen about your wives. It's true. You see that, you see that woman, and it is her beauty that draws you. And it is the same thing with Christ. And what is the result? Marriage? In both situations. We become married to Christ because he is so beautiful. We are delivered by Christ because he is so beautiful and so amazing and his work is so sufficient. So the Lord, the prayer is, Lord, turn us the prayer is, Lord, shine down upon us so that we might be set free and delivered. And because of those two things, it is deliverance. Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Most of us have experienced some bondage in our life. We've entered into some cycle of bondage. We may be in that cycle of bondage even now. It may not be sin that is our bondage, but it may be the product of our sin. Some things like discouragement, maybe anger or negativity, some prison that has grasped you and holds you in, and you might overcome a certain sin, and you think, well, I'm going to be delivered now from the consequences, and you find yourself in another sin, doing something else, trying to satisfy the, what is really broken, which is you're broken on the inside. You're fixing the outside, but you're broken on the inside. And then something else comes in to your world because you're broken on the inside. You need the Lord to fix the inside. And the Lord is the only one who is capable of doing it. We have always known how to pray to be free from sin. But now we can see from this text 
the necessity of praying to be free from the consequences of sin. We want to be set free from from the bondage that our sins have placed us in. We pray for deliverance from hell, but maybe we not just pray for deliverance from the physical hell, but also from hell on earth. May we be mindful of the fact that he is our shepherd, he is sovereign, and he is a savior. He can help you in times of need. He will help you in times of need if you will go to him in repentance, if you will go to him and ask for repentance. You ever been in that place where you just, you just knew? I can't even bring the turning around to the table. It's okay with God. Just acknowledge it. I remember when I came to know the Lord as my Savior in my late teens and early 20s, one of the things that I struggled with most, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor, and it was all, you know, I, I had kind of my eyes dotted and my T's crossed and all that stuff was going on. And I always thought this. I, would, I lived in sin. I knew I lived in sin and I was wrong. But I always thought in my mind, I don't really want to be in sin. So my justification was, yes, I do sin, but I don't really want to. So I'm okay. As long as I don't want, I mean, how many of us don't really want to do sin? I mean, it was really like, a, like okay, you're not really being honest with yourself. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, and I was right in my own eyes. But my justification was, is, yeah, I'm living in sin, but I don't really want to be there. And I tell you, here's the, one of the things that God convinced me of when I came to know him as my Savior was simply this. I wanted to be in sin. My want was broken too. Every aspect of me was broken. And the thing that God was working in me was the acknowledgement that not just what I was doing was broken, but my desires were broken. You know, you go to that place where it's like, I want to do what's right, but I just live in sin, and that's how you justify yourself? How about this? I want to do what's wrong, and I'm just being honest, and I need God to change me. Because listen to me, that is honesty. That is the core of your sinfulness. It's not just that you want to do what's right, and you therefore, but you sin. It is that you want to sin, but you don't want to face the consequences. Stop justifying yourself, folks, and start accepting the fact that at your core, it is sinful, and you need Jesus. We need Jesus to change us, not on the outside, but we need Jesus to change us on the inside. And he is merciful, and he is sovereign, and he is a shepherd who cares. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we pray and we hope and we anticipate and believe in you, that you, um, and ask of you that you'll turn us, you'll continue to turn us, continue to turn us so that we might see you more clearly and more boldly, that we might recognize your beauty and your glory and your goodness, even in difficult times and circumstances. I pray that you would shine brightly upon us, that we might be set free from any and all bondages. There, there is no prison to those who stand in the presence of the one who is God. So Lord God, please shine down upon us. 
And as a result, Lord, may we be saved. We love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that are in it. And we pray that you will not let it be void or empty this morning. And we give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen.